let's disabuse ourselves of the notion of clearing the mind or that we're going to have some ethereal blissful experience what we will get though the real win is we're going to own our own attention we're going to know where it is moment by moment i believe that the opposite of depression it's not happiness it's purpose i believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world and that's why i wanted to create a show called don't keep your day job don't keep your day job is about figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short, and to stop sitting it out, and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music or screenwriting or dance or baking, and how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full time, because it's not just about business, it's about contribution, it's about meaning. That is what we seek, that is what we truly want, and you absolutely are here to serve the world, and I want to help you figure out just how much value you have inside of you. And every single week, we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way, to help you be more successful, to help you be the truest expression of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Jiminy's, maker of sustainable dog food made with cricket protein. Cricket protein is a superfood, delicious, nutritious, sustainable, humane, and prebiotic. To learn more and save 20% on your first purchase, go to Jiminy's.com slash dreamjob and use code dreamjob20 at checkout. Also, thanks to Whey. Don't let cold weather leave your locks dry and brittle. Whey leave-in conditioner is your hydration hero. So say goodbye to frizz and tangles. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and use code DREAMJOB to get 15% off your entire purchase. We're also supported by CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a community of people who are tired of paying for a broken system. It isn't health insurance. It's a better way to pay medical expenses. Get your first month free plus the fitness wearable. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com slash fit and enter code DREAMJOB at sign up. And thanks to GoodRx. GoodRx is a free and easy to use service that allows you to instantly compare prices for your prescriptions and find discounts on your medications. So start saving up to 80% on your prescriptions today. Go to goodrx.com slash dreamjob. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I hope you had a beautiful weekend. It was the first night of Hanukkah last night and it is just so beautiful to, to light these lights. And you know, it's amazing about light is that so often with things, especially material things, the more you give away, the less you have. But with a candle, you can light as many, many candles as you want with one light without the light losing or diminishing any of its flame. And so I think that we need to get that, that when we put our light in the world, when we shine, when we bring beautiful energy, love, compassion, goodness, that it only expands, that we don't have less of it by giving it away. We actually just create more and more and more. And that's true not only about love, but it's also true with abundance. And all of that is what I'm really trying to do here. And so really each of you to me are such miracles when you really come home to the most familiar, sometimes unfamiliar feeling, which is like being connected to yourself and getting rid of all that ego, which is just the imposter syndrome showing up as ego. Like, 
who am I to do this? It's like each of us, each of us has the ability to fully show up in our light, give it away. And when we do that, it's just incredible how much comes back, how much just reverberates. And you know, you know that one candle can light up such a dark room. And so each of us is needed right now. Each of us is needed right now in this world to make an impact and that it just takes that one light. It really does. Like one light can really make a difference in a dark room. So I hope that you know that you are that difference and I love you. So happy Hanukkah and thanks for being in my life. Thank you for being here. So I decided to do a special surprise for Black Friday and we're continuing it now just for a couple more days since you're only hearing about it right now. I posted it on Instagram over the weekend, but I don't think everybody who listens to the show has heard it. So in line with Hanukkah, we're actually calling this Lit Up, Lit Up. So if you want to join me, there's going to be still for the next couple of days, a Black Friday special for $25. You can join this monthly membership that I'm doing where basically you're going to be lit up. We're going to jump on Zoom calls and every month I'm going to come on and I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to teach you things. We're going to focus on abundance. We're going to focus on you fully being like in the life that you have been dreaming of. Um, Sometimes I'll bring on guests and you've heard so many of my friends come on this show and they all have such an aligned, beautiful, powerful strength and wisdom. And so every single month we'll get to take it off the podcast and show up together, seeing each other on Zoom. These sessions will always be at least 90 minutes. There will be time for Q&A. You will learn things, you will feel things, and you are guaranteed to be lit up. If you want to join me for that, just go to kathyheller.com slash BF. The BF stands for Black Friday. Go to kathyheller.com slash BF, and you'll be able to get in on this lit up membership for $25 to have with me these high vibe Zoom calls so that you can truly make 2022 the best the best year yet. I know that holiday shopping, some of the things are, you know, stuck at ports and we've been having issues with deliveries, but this is something you can get right away. So you could buy lit up for yourself. You can also get it for your friend. This is about instead of buying more stuff, this is you investing in saying yes to you, to making yourself a priority and to making 2022 the most exciting, astounding year We're actually going to have our first call next Friday. These calls will be the first Friday of the month. So come on and join us. Again, you can go to kathyheller.com slash BF so that you can get the Black Friday special at $25. This is a steal. I've never offered a membership for 25 bucks. You're going to enjoy this. I can't wait to see you there. Join me in Lit Up. All right. Well, I'm so excited because today's episode, we're talking about one of my favorite topics, mindfulness. And we have here a brilliant neuroscientist who has done a ton of research around this. Her name is Dr. Amishi Jha. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She's an author, a speaker, and director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. We are going to talk about her incredible new book, Peak Mind, 
Find Your Focus, Own Your Attention, Invest 12 Minutes a Day. This book is going to teach you how to train your brain so that you can regain control of your focus and redirect your attention to the present moment. It is such an important topic, especially because we live in a world where there's constant distraction, so many notifications on your phone. I cannot recommend this enough. This is going to help you take back your moments, right? A happy life is a string of happy moments and we miss the moment so often because we don't have our attention. Amishi has been featured at NATO, the World Economic Forum, the Pentagon, the New York Times, NPR, Time Magazine, Forbes, and she's been all over the place in the podcast world. In fact, she was just on Joe Rogan's podcast, Dax Shepard's podcast, and I'm so honored that she chose to be here. She is so wise, and she has a way of putting these seemingly abstract concepts into metaphors that you can really understand. Not only is Dr. Amishi Joss so brilliant, but she is especially kind She's such a good soul. I can't wait for you to hear this. It's going to blow your mind. Without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Dr. Amishi Ja. Amishi, thank you so much for taking the time and showing up for the show. So excited to be here, Kathy. I've just been seeing you everywhere. Your book is jaw-dropping, and um, I just love seeing a, a woman doctor in this world, in this moment, bringing down so much truth speaking so much truth. Tell us how you got into the mindfulness work and the neuroscience work. What attracted you to that in the first place? Yeah. So it's really funny given the name of your podcast Mm -hmm. and the kind of journey that maybe many people listening are on where you just don't necessarily feel completely aligned with the thing that you're doing in the moment. It's your professional life or just the life circumstances that you're in. So my, my journey with neuroscience is much longer. I thought I was going to be a medical doctor and then nope, didn't want to work in a hospital, didn't want to be around sick people. Ended up, thankfully, being able to do volunteer work while I was still early on, like maybe my freshman year in college, in a brain injury unit. So I was still thinking I'm going to work in a hospital but or be a physician. And I was like, I don't want to treat the brain. I want to understand it. You know, I don't want to treat the body. I don't want to fix illness. I just, it's not my thing. But I then thankfully also, it was the first year or the first time they were allowing psychology to be offered as a biological science. So essentially it was a neuroscience degree. So as an undergrad, I was able to study neuroscience and I went on to grad school, always been interested in, in sort of the brain and consciousness, et cetera. And then fast forward went to grad school, postdoc, had my first faculty position at the University of Pennsylvania. The topic I was studying was attention, and I was very interested in attention. I was passionate about it. You know, the thing that I loved about attention, which we can get into, is how powerful it is to impact sort of the entirety of the way the brain functions. But within the first couple of years of setting up my own lab, at that point, I had a little boy. He wasn't even three yet. My husband was in grad school. We bought this old fixer upper in West Philly. It's like every aspect of my life was like intense, demanding, and kind of full throttle. And I was miserable. I was actually miserable to the point where I'm like, I don't want to keep going like this. I, I want to, I want to be here in my life. And I kept feeling like my life was slipping away. Mindfulness entered my own life simply really directly as a way for me to try to feel better. I didn't know it would. In fact, I had probably a lot of skepticism and resistance to mindfulness, just personal history, uh, which we can also talk about. But anyway, I was at the point where I was like, I got to 
figure out how I'm going to change the way that I operate, meaning I got to change my brain, or I've got to figure out how to change my life. And at that point, I still knew I hadn't really given it a try to try to change my brain, which is a strange thing that probably only a neuroscientist might consider doing. So I started practicing mindfulness. I realized that it was like a light bulb moment when I was like, you know what? This is changing my attention. And hey, I have all the tools in my lab to study it. So it wasn't that I changed my career path, but the pivot I made to dedicate my lab's resources to now studying mindfulness and attention, it like woke me up from the inside out. And everything started falling into place where now all of a sudden a sense of passion and joy and interest reemerged, even though the external circumstances were exactly the same. I'm literally hanging on every single <laughs> word. I feel like you just articulated what all of us are feeling or have felt that feeling of not being present for your life, that feeling of constantly kicking the can down the road, that the goal of that happy feeling or finally receiving yeah. that, which you have been building one day, you, you think you will finally put your feet on the ottoman and have it, but you don't put your feet on the ottoman ever and then go, what is this ride? If it's always about getting to the next place and not being right here where my feet are. You just said that so well, but then what's literally blowing my hair back is the fact that you had the tools to then study the effects of it, to then literally open the Pandora's box, open the portal for all of us to see in a concrete way what's happening in our brain. And you, you've been giving us now through your work, the answer to the question, like, how can you, instead of trying to keep changing your life, keep changing your life, how can you just change the brain? So let's get into it. Yeah. What can we learn? And by the way, for everybody who's listening, she said, call me Amishi, but Dr. Amishi Jaw just wrote this incredible <laughs> book called Peak Mind. You have to go get it, find your focus, own your attention, invest 12 minutes a day. And I just had Dan Butner here talking about the blue zones. And of course he said, why, why the centenarians? Because they meditate, because mm -hmm. they reduce the inflammation and the inflammation comes from the cortisol. And when we meditate, we are able to live longer. So all rivers lead to this ocean. And yet it is an enigma. We don't fully get it, grasp it, understand it. What did you find out? How can we begin to cross this river? Yeah, great question. You're right. You know, it, it was fortuitous that the very thing that I was searching, I got some insight from my personal experience and I was able to bring the rigor of science to actually answer the questions that may, would make it potentially of interest for more than just me. So that's, that's what I was interested in was, you know, I knew that I was a great case study of one, but I'm one person. And as a scientist, a lot of things can happen to one person that many, many people may not experience. So it, it was like, I had to be the most rigorous I've ever been in anything I've done because I knew there was gonna be a challenge in convincing myself and convincing other people that mindfulness actually had a chance of altering attention. But maybe the place to start is, let's just talk a little bit about attention because I actually think this is why we're in a lot of pain right now. Kind of our current modern moment is one that feels an attentional crisis. 
And I felt that crisis personally. I felt it because I couldn't, like, I felt like I couldn't look at my own spouse and like see what was on his face. It was like I was blank or even trying to read research articles, like finding that the meaning just kind of was like evaporating. And probably my wake up moment happened with my son when I was trying to read to him. And this is something I valued so much. It was like a precious time in my day, no matter what my demands, I was going to do this. I wanted to be there. And I realized I wasn't even there then. So, you know, these are real things. I mean, these are, this is not life or death in that sense. I mean, we deal with people and professionals in my lab where an attentional lapse could literally mean life or death, whether it's a service member, a first responder, or medical or nursing professional. It wasn't that for me, but it was this notion that life isn't really worth living unless you can really experience it in a way that you want. So, yeah. So, you know, and, and it does come down to attention because in many ways, I see attention as the fuel that we need in order to do very everyday things and very important things. And and we can think of it as sort of, in some ways, a superpower and some ways, the only way that we can even make sense of our world. So just to kind of broadly, do you mind if I talk a little bit about attention? I want you to. And I just want to say, when you said that, my entire body felt it because as soon as you said those words, it's like, yeah, we are constantly overstimulated. And I haven't had that thought ever, what you just said about Mm. like, what is attention and where is it? And maybe some of the pain that we experience is because of the lack of attention. And then you said a few sentences later, like the experience of actually living your life, like what a mic drop sentence what would it feel like to actually have the experience of living the life you actually live? I mean, this is why I said to you before we started recording, you're everywhere. You've been on Joe Rogan, you've been on everybody's show because your access to speaking this information into the world, you're doing it in such a clear, beautiful, profound way. And I am so excited. I, I feel just so grateful to be having this conversation. So, oh, so let's talk yeah. about the attention, Yeah, how we yeah. can cultivate it and what the heck has happened. It's right. become elusive, our attention. It has, yet it's the thing that is constantly under so much attack in some sense. Everybody wants it. Every app wants it. 24-7, our colleagues, friends, families want it. It's the most sought after thing. And the thing is that we have to remember that we need to own it in some sense. And that's actually one of the parts of you mentioned my book. Thank you for mentioning it. But yeah, find your focus, own your attention. I mean, that notion of owning our attention is not something most of us think about. It's just something we take for granted. It's something that we've always had. We may feel distracted or pulled by certain things, but this notion of it's ours, it's our intrinsic Lifeblood in many ways is not something we, we usually think about. But just to back up, like, why do we even have an attention system? You know, why does it even exist in the brain? A lot of that comes out of, well, let's just put it this way the way that our attention functions now, given all of the challenges we might be experiencing, given the crisis of attention we might be in, it's actually the success story of 
human evolution. We are the success story of human evolution. Whatever we have right now that we carry around in our brains was selected for, I mean, refined generation after generation. It didn't happen on by accident and it's not superfluous. We need it. We need it all the time. So one of the ways to think about why we have it and why we need it is without attention, a brain without attention is essentially either completely blank, dark, doesn't understand the world, can't see the world I mean, in any from any of its senses, or it's a complete cacophony where so much is happening that it's only experiencing and not filtering. So the most broad way to put a, um, a definition of this term attention is that it was a way for the brain to solve a giant problem it had, which is that there's just far more out there in the world and even within its own internal structures then it could fully process. So attention is a way to select a subset of information, filter out everything that's not relevant and highlight what is. And that's a way, if you think about, you know, I use this metaphor a lot because I find it so handy. It's like we're in a darkened room, just the phenomenology would be like, we're in a darkened room and our attention is like a flashlight. So if you want to find out where the door is or figure out where you are, you survey, the kind of external landscape beautiful. and wherever it it's is a beautiful you, analogy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And wherever it is that you point that flashlight, you get more information, richer, crisper, clearer information. The very cool thing about this capacity is, you know, through the course of evolution, we didn't just have it to be able to direct it to the external environment, but we can direct it internally. And this is frankly, what makes us so uniquely capable as human beings. If you have an idea that pops into your head, you can shine the flashlight on it and pursue it. It becomes prominent in your thinking and everything else kind of fades away. Or if you have a memory and you want to kind of bring it to mind, you've shined the flashlight on the memory and it has a richness to it that you might not have. So it becomes so useful for not just the external landscape, but the internal landscape. And that's just one way attention works. So just that's the starter for why we have it and, and how it works. I'll just say that one of the challenges I think that happens is in addition to this flashlight being able to be directed to the external environment, to the internal environment, I think one of the reasons we have like a real pain point around our attention is because that same flashlight can get yanked around. So if you're in that same darkened room, you hear weird rustling, <laughs> you think you're alone, you hear a weird rustling, in that moment, you're gonna take that flashlight and point it to wherever you heard the sound coming from. And why did you do that? Again, evolution designed us to quickly pivot to things that are threatening, uncertain, novel. And again, it's not just things in the external environment that have those qualities. If I have a thought that is threatening, <laughs> fear-inducing, novel, my internal flashlight is going to get yanked to it. So there's always this tension between what I want to devote my focus on and what may pull it away instead. It's incredible. This conversation is so good. It's gold. Before we keep going, I just want to thank our sponsors. Did you know more than half of Americans are on a high deductible health insurance plan? That means thousands of dollars of deductibles, co-pays, and sky-high premiums. For many people in the U.S., there are no good health care options. You either go uninsured or you pay through the nose for a high deductible plan with questionable coverage, all because of a broken health insurance system. That's why I want to tell you about CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth isn't health insurance. It's a better way to pay medical expenses. 
With CrowdHealth, you can get a simple, flexible, and affordable way to pay for your healthcare. You can pay as a monthly subscription and start or shop when it's convenient for you. And with their easy-to-use app, you can find nearly any doctor in the country, scan bills, and receive virtual care anytime, anywhere, with just the press of a button. CrowdHealth gets rid of the insurance middleman and passes the savings to its members. So 100% of your monthly membership pays for actual healthcare costs, helping the whole CrowdHealth community stay healthy while keeping more money in your pocket. CrowdHealth is able to offer amazing prices because of its community of health-conscious members. But for a limited time, my listeners get their first month free. And after you've been a member, CrowdHealth will include a fitness wearable. That's 30 days to try risk-free plus the fitness wearable. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com slash fit and enter code dreamjob at signup. That's joincrowdhealth.com slash fit promo code dreamjob. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a community-powered alternative. Terms and conditions may apply. Thanks to GoodRx for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. With GoodRx, you can instantly compare prices for your prescription at every pharmacy in your neighborhood and save up to 80%. GoodRx is free, easy to use, and it's the number one most downloaded medical app. With GoodRx, you can instantly compare prices for your prescriptions across pharmacies like CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Walmart, and more to find the best discount available to you. That's why millions of Americans use GoodRx to get affordable healthcare every month. I know that the winter usually means that we might have a few cases of the flu, so I want to be ahead of the game and get some medicine. It was really easy to use GoodRx to compare the best price, and I saved over 75%. It's been astounding how big the range of prices can be between pharmacies, so having GoodRx is super helpful to know where I can get the best deal. To start saving up to 80% on your prescriptions today, go to goodrx.com slash dreamjob. That's goodrx.com slash dreamjob to start saving up to 80% on your prescriptions. GoodRx is not insurance, but it can be used instead of insurance. In 2020, GoodRx users saved an average savings of 79% of retail prices. I have been feeling in my, I've been on this journey a long time, studied, took many classes at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center. And oh, cool. Yeah, read all of the books and full catastrophe living and all of those books like for years and years and years and and then found you and and all of the people in between. And I find that as soon as I drop in, it will bring me to tears sometimes how beautiful a moment can be looking at light dancing through the window on a leaf or looking at my daughter whatever she's doing or just sitting in a moment and about 9 seconds later I feel terror. I feel something could take this away. I feel, oh, this is why I've been avoiding this Mm -hmm. because there is so much joy and deep, deep gratitude in these moments that we almost keep ourselves from that full body dropping Mm -hmm. in. What is that phenomenon? Do you have any experience feeling that or seeing that in your research and how do people overcome that? so that they can sustain, so that they mm. can linger in it. Such an important insight. So it's almost like what I think you're describing is when you like direct that flashlight of your attention to the things in your life that, or the experiences that you find bring joy, beauty, fulfillment, there's that ricochet effect of like the impermanent nature of it or but there's also a hellscape or there's also this, and it's almost like you can't reconcile it. So you may, may even pull your flashlight away because it's too painful to think of things as not being there. So this is a very, very profound, deep and quite human experience, right? And if you think about it, you mentioned all those different people, all the wisdom traditions and in particular mindfulness as a wisdom tradition, which I think is aiming to 
help people through that human suffering. I mean, it truly is the suffering and nothing changed in that moment. You were safe, you were stable, but it's a very real feeling. And yeah, I've certainly experienced it myself and I've certainly seen it in other people that we've worked with. But let me just say that there are solutions. There are ways that we can place those feelings in a bigger container. And that maybe takes us to this second system of attention, frankly. So everything we've been talking about so far is this sort of narrowing and focusing. And we can, you've already described some of the real benefits of doing that. We get like a richness to yep. it. Now, just to say, in the same way that you could see beauty when you point that flashlight of attention, you can also see a hell that you may have never seen before. Right? 100% have had that experience too. That's millions right. of times. That's yeah. right. And that's what you were kind of describing, I think, is like you want to direct it here or you have directed it in one place and it gets pulled by that tension of that same resource being wanting to be directed somewhere and being yanked around. But the thing that's common about all of it is it's narrow. It's narrow. It's selecting some information over other information. The second system of attention is almost the exact opposite. When I say opposite, I mean, really, it's it's broad receptive, it's not privileging anything. And, and I always like to think of it as the metaphor of a floodlight, or sometimes if I'm talking mm. to people in the UK, they'll say a fog light. And I was like, okay, a fog light. But the point is, whereas the flashlight is privileging certain content over other content, the floodlight is really privileging, because remember, that's the job of attention, privilege some information over other information. The thing the floodlight's doing, or this other system, which was formerly called the alerting system of the brain, it's privileging now. What is occurring right now? And I actually, this notion of a floodlight just came because I happen to have a, a light above my garage. And anytime there's a motion in my, you know, in the area around the garage, the thing goes on. And it's like, it's like, oh, what's going on right now? So it's always about now. Another way to think about it, if you want to remind yourself of this experience, if you're driving down the road or walking and you see a yellow flashing light, kind of like maybe by a construction site or school, that way you make your mind like, okay, be vigilant, be aware of what's happening. Right. You don't want to be narrowing there. You don't want to be privileging any information because you have no idea. It could be children running, it could be equipment, whatever it is. So you're there, you're readied, you're observant, and you're broadly open to what's going on. So in some ways, going back to what you were saying, the solution to our feeling yanked around or putting our, you know, in the context of, for example, depression, oftentimes that flashlight just gets pulled by depressogenic thought and we can't pull it away. So even if, even if we say, okay, I don't want to be there anymore. We're stuck in ruminative loops. Most people don't think of depression as an attentional challenge, but as an attention researcher, I'll tell you it is. It's that our attention is, is really just selectively directed and we can't see ourselves out. It's also really unproductive because unlike focusing it on a thought and then problem solving it or pursuing it, what we're doing with rumination is we're looping and we're getting nowhere, totally. right? So this second system of attention, and we'll talk about, we can talk about how it's cultivated and, and expanded through mindfulness practice can really hold us in this kind of more spacious orientation so that when disturbing content, when that thought pops up into your head, like, oh, this could all be taken away or life is so short or some you just have to accept yes all of those are the reality impermanence is reality of life but the destabilizing aspect of it is when you kind of end up ruminating on it it's like oh my gosh then there's no point of anything and like you can get into this kind of terrible nihilistic orientation instead of saying it's right here 
you know, I'm broad, receptive, steady. My floodlight is shining on everything that's happening. And right now I see beauty and I understand how there is pain. You know, I see joy and I see suffering. And when we take that kind of a broader container view of our experience, we feel more capable of handling everything that's happening to us, whether it's a challenge that we have to rise to or a sorrow that we have to hold. So I think that just it's important to think how this is what I meant by attention really can be a lifeblood, because even in that simple example of the broadening and the narrowing, we see our life play out in these multiple ways. Yeah, that is so profound. And uh, I once heard another idea where if you were to see like what my camera lens sees, right, it sees what's actually here because it has no cognitive bias, whereas I'm only going to see whatever my hologram that I'm projecting based upon what thought, right. I'm deciding. Right. So we, like you said, and what I've learned, and I'm such a novice, but I have learned that these thoughts like repeat, right. Most of what we think repeats and repeats. And I often say to people, the real fake news is mostly your thoughts. Like just Mm -hmm. cause you think it doesn't make it true. And then you get like into this hyper arousal where like that thought just like plays 16 other thoughts and it's so used to doing it. So help us understand, like you just said, how does this second system and how does mindfulness play into opening the aperture Yeah. so that we don't have to get stuck in the same loop that we've probably been rehearsing for 35 years? I would have a lot to say on that, but I think that even before we get there, I want to tell you about the third system of attention because it's going to help us get there because there's basically attention works. It's this complex system, but it has these three sort of separate ways of privileging certain information. So some is just based on the content. Some is based on the time. And the third way that we select certain content is based on our goals. And that goes to what you were saying, like the story we have or the view we hold or what we want to accomplish. And really that's what I mean when I say goal, it's, what do I want to have happening? What do I want to have happen right now? And what is the reality of what's happening? And I need to correct the mismatch between those. And formally, we call this the executive system of attention. Mm-hmm. And it's like the executive of a company, right? Like the executive of a company's job is to make sure whatever's going on aligns with the goals the organization has and to course correct. So what does course correcting mean? Well, if the goals are inappropriate because something's changed in the supply chain or something, you update. If uh, mm. there's behavior that's being engaged in, that is inappropriate, you suppress or inhibit it. Nope, don't do that. But you have to keep the goals in mind too. Like you have to have that at the front of your mind of what is the most important thing. So I call this system sort of like a juggler. And by the way, these views of these simple analogies really come through trying to explain to my own children, like what is it that I do in the lab? And, And actually it's very helpful for children to understand these different ways of, I think for all of us, but for children in particular, because as you know, as you know, you said you have a daughter, Three daughters. Three daughters, yeah. So they don't have fully developed frontal lobes till none of us did until we were about 25. So understanding that these are different ways we pay attention can be quite a handy tool. That's sort of an aside. So anyway, this executive control is really important because it's, it's allowing us to have a present moment orientation toward the situation. Like right now, my goal is to have a meaningful conversation with with Kathy. So I should probably listen to her. I should look at her facial expressions. And, you know, even if I get a knock on the door, probably ignore it unless it's more than once, then be like, what's up? (laughs) Right. I mean, we know what's appropriate in the moment and we behave accordingly. Now, all of these systems are vulnerable. Like we already talked about how the flashlight's vulnerable. It can get yanked around by 
very, very potent mentally generated content, which frankly, in the book I call kryptonite. And it really is. It's like, it's the thing that just kills attention. It just falls apart. And we know these experiences too, stress, feeling threatened. And it could be not just like somebody's going to get me, but psychosocial threat, evaluative threat. The way I'm thought of is not appropriate or not good. And then poor mood. So when our mind generates that content, that flashlight will get hijacked. We can't do the right thing. When the floodlight gets into trouble, when it's not like we're just broad and receptive, but we're kind of hypervigilant. It's like we're so here that we always think that there's like some kind of potential danger that we got to be alerted to. And then, of course, executive control can go wrong in many ways, but oftentimes it's like we don't remember the goal. I mean, like from simple things like you walk into a room with determination, you have no idea where you there, right? That's not consequential, but if you're having a difficult conversation with somebody that you love and you forget that this is for the purpose of deepening our connection or right. great example, problem, we're going to go off in all kinds of directions and not course correct. So things can be consequential when they go wrong in all three of these systems. And, and when I look back at that moment, I was describing to you, like in my own life of like, why wow, I just don't have my attention here. It's just not here. The flashlight is who the hell knows where. I'm feeling like everything is like a blaring floodlight, like pointing at me. I can't even see. And executive control feels like it's offline. I was just on a search, especially if the goal was trying to see if you can change your mind before you kind of rearrange the entirety of your life. What can train all of these? What can train them efficiently? And how can I start like training today on my own? Because I doubt with the complexity of what these functions are, taking a pill is going to help me all that much. Like it's too complex and nuanced to have one kind of neurochemical neurotransmitter system change all of it. So that's kind of how mind mindfulness entered. And really to get to your, your question, that's what we started studying. So I can definitely, we can dig into how mindfulness does change those kinds of systems to be able to widen the window, as you were saying, in some sense to hold what, what's going on. Yeah. I mean, the way you just laid that out is new to me. I haven't mm. heard all of those systems. I've heard pieces of that, but you you just did that so beautifully. And I would like to dive into it. And I think my first question where we can start, because you literally just wrote a book on it, you probably have the equivalent of 12 books inside of you. <laughs> so we'll start somewhere. And what I would say to you is, I think most of my listeners, and I don't know for sure, but can relate to the idea that they're on board. Like hearing you speak, I think people are probably like, yep, yep, I'm on board. And I have been there over and over again, trying to meditate, trying to feel my feet on the ground. And it is hard. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we had Dan Butner on the show. He talked about this very clear evidence that we will live longer when we have a meditation practice, when we're more mindful, all the things that it does for us, for us, our body reduces cortisol, all of these things. And yet knowing it's not enough, right? So when people begin, okay, this is the question when people begin and they get still, Ooh, a lot of stuff comes up. What is that? And how can we sit there long enough to cross the river to where it's not so uncomfortable? What okay. is that? And how can we move into it rather than just going, I'm out. I can't. Right. Yeah. So here's the thing. And, you know, I was listening to some of your other episodes and I was like, wow, this is a theme. It's truly a theme that comes up over and over again. And it's this notion that you said earlier, which I loved the way you put it, like, put your feet up, right? This notion of like, uh mm-hmm. 
Like I can take a breath. Right. We know what that feels like. What that feels like is like surrendering to the reality of what is with this accepting, loving heart. Like it is, and we're not fighting it. It doesn't even need to be okay. It just is. There's an ease about that feeling. So I'm, I don't know if you're going to like or dislike my answer, but my basic answer is this has to happen kind of moment by moment. We cannot reify, and that's a tricky term, but I'm going to use it anyway. We can't reify our reality. Like reify basically, you know, just like concretize, like it's all good now. Like it's, it was bad and yep. now it's good. Yep. And the reason that's so problematic is because of what you started out saying. And I love the way you said it was so much real. You know, I felt the love and I felt the pain of the way you said it. Moments pass. One moment, bliss. Next moment, hell. That is reality. And so to think, no, I got to hold on reality now. Oh, reality is awesome or reality is terrible. It's just not the model we want. And this is what the mindfulness practice is going to get us in touch with. And I totally agree with you. It's the same as physical exercise, right? We know we need it. I mean, it's like you, you go to any right, medical right. advice, 150 minutes a day. And it's like, I don't feel like it this morning. And it doesn't, it doesn't get you there. So let's talk about some of the, the resistance and pain points. So, you know, the first thing to say is like, what is a concretely, what is a mindfulness practice and what is mindfulness? Let's just start there. So the way that I talk about mindfulness is, is going to obviously have attention at the center of, but it's, essentially paying attention to our present moment experience without editorializing about it or reacting to it, right? So attention, you already heard the term attention is an attention researcher. That's when my ears perked up. It was like, oh, okay. So it's like paying attention, like the flashlight is right now. It's in this moment. The floodlight is also in this moment. The juggler knows right now is the goal. Right now is the goal. So you're kind of aligning all three systems. But the quality of attention is the, is the other thing. Like, you know, like you said about your camera, you're getting the data of what's occurring without the story. And we don't really know how to do that. That is a really tricky thing. First of all, the idea that our mind is overlaying a story on reality is also, for most of us, like, what are you talking about? You know, like when that guy cut me off in traffic, it's because he's an asshole. It's not that there's a set of circumstances and I'm imposing that view on another human being. So... These are things that we can wake up to, but let's start with just mindfulness, paying attention, present moment experience without what we call conceptual elaboration. Now, again, like a little bit of a mouthful, but all that means is the concepts, the notion of thinking is just proliferates, just like hyperlinking when you're on the internet. And we're trying to do it without the hyperlinking. We're like, we're here. We're going to stay here. We're not going to click on the next link. Good. That's such and a great way to say it. <laughs> yes. And you know, you're, you're making me think like, it's so beautiful what you're saying. I mean, really, you are proposing, if I can put my own words so boldly, like it's equanimity, right? It's like being present for that which is. And this like brings tears to my eyes because it's like it requires allowing it to be as it is. And we have so much resistance to that. Yeah. Either because there is grief that we have not yet processed or because there are dreams that we have not yet unpacked and, and come to terms with whatever they meant or didn't mean. And it's like allowing it to be as it is and accepting it as it is without adding all of the layers and all of the story and all of the narrative. It is beautiful. But like yeah. you said, you're never going to go 
there it is. I've trapped the lightning in the bottle and now I will arrive at happiness right. for the rest of my life. It's like, that is not the human not nature. That's not the nature experience. of experience. That's and not we, the nature of reality. Yeah. Right. We just have to, we have to come to what is as it is not yeah. as we decided. And that is just what you just said. The layers deep. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. But here's the, here's the other kind of paradox of all of this. Unless we do that, we can never get what we want. We will never get there to achieve our goals unless we're able to accept our way there. You know, like wrap your head around that one. Unless I accept what is happening right now, I won't get to my goal. And I'm saying that not to be, it's a spiritual kind of a concept, but I'm not saying it that way. I'm saying it from a cognitive neuroscience point of view. Like your brain will not be able to hold a goal and allow you to plan toward that goal if you are in a constant state of editorializing, reacting, proliferating, laying on stories, because frankly, the mental workspace that we have is limited. So if you clutter it up with regret or remorse or fear or panic or anger, there's no space to have the planful thought, to hold it in mind and to strive for it in some way. That is mind blowing. And my question for you then is because these stories take up so much room, how can we like popping a soap bubble, how can we dial it down, release the story and at the same time, come to present with whatever is underneath that? Like you know, from my child yesterday, she's five. She says to me, mommy, at my school, we have a list of the things we are allowed to feel in the pre-K. One of them is sad. One of them is excited. One of them is nervous. We're allowed, mommy. She goes, we're allowed to feel all those feelings in the pre-K. And I said, I was like on the verge of tears that they're teaching this. And my mindfulness teacher used to say, feelings are like visitors. They will knock and knock and knock. And if you let them in, at some point, they will get up and they will go. But it's almost as if Janine Roth talks about this in her book, Women, Food, and God. It's like the the feeling is like a tiger. It's so scary that we're so afraid of the feeling that we make up all these stories to go in between us and this feeling. Yeah. Is that it? Is it that we just need to find a way to access and hold the feeling Will that finally release us from the story? Like, clearly you keep talking about this, that narrative, that constant conjecture. How do we release those stories? Okay. Well, the first thing is to know that the stories do not have a mental life of their own. They're fueled by attention. So this kind of requires a different model that I think, I think is it's important. So and it's something, it's a brain resource called working memory. So have you heard of this or talked about this notion of working memory? Okay, so working memory, don't worry about the word memory. It's not like long-term memory where we're thinking about our childhood or whatever. It's a mental scratch space that is a few seconds to a minute long. It's almost like the cache or RAM in your computer. Like it's not to be held forever, but you need it to be able to work things out. So think of the last time that you calculated a tip in your head or you're in the conversation and you have a point to make and you're just kind of holding it long enough to then insert it into the conversation, right? Or in the old days where we had to look up phone numbers and phone books and then walk to a phone, what we were rehearsing was in our working memory. So I consider it like 
It's the mind's internal whiteboard, mm -hmm. but that whiteboard has disappearing ink. That's what I mean by it's temporary. Uh. So if you don't keep rewriting what is in the mind in that moment, it will fade away. It will. So rumination in some sense is us having a particular, let's say difficult concept or emotion, and we are actively using our attention, rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And we'll think of it again, we'll rewrite it. And so do remember that, that that's your attention. It's the flashlight shining on that thought again, and then you're rewriting it. So that's a limited workspace. It doesn't have a lot of room. And that's what I meant, that if it's cluttered with all this writing of all this stuff in the moment, the goal is buried somewhere in there of what you're actually trying to achieve. It'll never come up again. It'll be flooded and just blanked out by all this other stuff in there. So the question you're asking is, how do I kind of clear away the whiteboard in some sense? How do I make it dissolve? Well, the first thing to realize is we are active participants in it. So to notice that urge to want to rethink that thought, to notice that the mind is now wandering to certain content and it's kind of replaying it, just to notice that. Then we go to like the mindfulness practice itself, I think, to kind of unpack this. So let's just think of a basic mind. We define mindfulness, but what's a basic mindfulness practice, a foundational practice, mindfulness of the breath, right? So what we do in that practice is we take a few minutes and it doesn't have to be the breath as the anchor or the target, but let's just say we're going to use that. It could be anything. It could be a cup of coffee or a, or a mantra or whatever you want to use. But if it is our breath, what we do when in that practice is we quietly by ourselves, we'll notice, sit down, quiet place, notice that we're breathing. And then focus on something that is like a vivid sensation tied to breathing. So it could be the air around your nose, moving in and out of your chest. And then you take that flashlight, and this is where this model of attention can be used and helpful, because it goes back to your question of how do we get ourselves to do it? So just think of your mindfulness practice as attention training. And as a lot of my military colleagues call it, push-ups for the mind. That's what you gave mm -hmm. us, Amishi. It's a push-up. So what are the components of this mental push-up? Sitting there, you're going to focus on breath-related sensations. Okay, I'm going to sit. I'm going to check out what is vivid. Oh, it really is the breath. I'm going to commit to that being the target for my attention for this short, let's say you just start with a minute that you're going to do this. I'm going to take that flashlight of my attention and for this minute, I'm going to keep it on that breath-related sensation. The next part of the instruction, as you know, because you've spent many, many times with mindfulness teachers at the mark, <laughs> the next step of the practice is notice where your mind is. Where is your attention? Where is the flashlight? In fact, I, in the book, I call it the find your flashlight practice. It's not about focusing. It's about finding your flashlight. So you're focusing, you know, you where you want it to be, mm -hmm. right? And then you're still having the floodlight active saying, well, where is it? Where is it right now? You're just checking in moment by moment, moment by moment. Oh, I'm having a thought about the call I'm going to have later today. Bring that flashlight back, redirect it. So that's, those are the three steps, focus, notice, redirect. And in some sense, each of those steps is tied to each of those systems of attention. The focusing is the flashlight, the noticing is the floodlight, and the redirect is the goal of the executive control saying, ah, that's not your goal, get back. Oh, good. So as we do this over and over again, what do we gain? Well, first of all, we gain this notion of, I am capable of focusing my flashlight. I can do it. I'm also very capable of noticing where my mind is moment by moment and redirecting it. It's something within my power. I think the pitfalls become when people think, my flashlight should never waver. I'm directing it here. It should just stay. Why the heck is my mind wandering? Why is it so busy? It's, it's like you feel defeated 
by that. But here's the reality. Your mind as a human being, your mind is going to wander. In fact, the research suggests 50% of our waking moments, our attention will not be in the task at hand. And that includes when the task at hand is meditation. So, and that's normal. That's the baseline. If you're experiencing stress or any other difficult circumstances, that number is going to be higher. So there's nothing wrong with a mind that wanders. Get it out of your head that you ever are going to clear your mind. The whiteboard will never be blank. It will always have something on it, always. And that's its nature, it's fine. So I always like to encourage people to reframe that moment you have that, oh my God, I'm not even paying attention to the breath. It's not even been two breaths. And where you start chastising yourself, instead think, this is a win. I found my flashlight and bring it back. That is gold. People should listen and rewind that and play that for everyone they know. Because at this point with all of the apps, you know, the, all of the different mindfulness apps, at one point or another, a lot of people have tried this and that is their, their exact experience is they feel defeated. And the fact that I never knew that, that like, that's the baseline 50% of the time is, is your attentions elsewhere. That's wonderful to know. I have a few more things to ask you, but first I just want to give a shout out to our sponsor. Did you know feeding your dog with foods made from cricket protein uses less land and water to produce, and it drastically eliminates greenhouse gas emissions compared to traditional animal protein dog food? Meet Jiminy's. They make nutritious and sustainable dog food and treats with cricket protein and other delicious plant-based ingredients. Insect protein is a truly sustainable protein source. In fact, one five-ounce bag of Jiminy's treats saves 220 gallons of water versus traditional animal protein types. Cricket protein is also better for your dog's digestion because crickets contain fibers that serve as a micro bile food stores and promote the growth of beneficial bacteria, also known as probiotics. Another reason to get Jiminy's is because it's great for food-sensitive dogs with allergies. Insect protein is considered a hypoallergenic food source and veterinarians are already using Jiminy's in elimination diets to determine food allergies. These insects are raised through more safe and humane methods. They live in clean indoor farms that are free of common pathogens that usually plague the meat industry like E. coli, salmonella, staph, and listeria. My husband is starting his own podcast and his co-host Mark has been feeding Jiminy's to his dog, Leo. Mark said Leo is a huge fan of Jiminy's and he's already planning to order more. I personally love that this company is female founded and striving to transform the pet food industry through a sustainable product that's better for the environment and for the dogs. To learn more and save 20% on your first purchase, go to Jiminy's.com slash dream job and use code dream job 20 at checkout. That's J-I-M-I-N-Y-S.com slash dream job with code dream job 20. I love that we're entering the holiday season, but the colder weather can really do a number on my hair. Don't let the cold winter leave your locks dry and brittle. The leave-in conditioner from Way is your hydration hero this winter because it conditions, detangles, and leaves your hair smooth, shiny, and manageable. For protection from heat, dryness, and frizz, the way to healthier hair is Way's best-selling leave-in conditioner. Say goodbye to frizz, tangles, flyaways, and break rich for all hair types. It can also protect hair from heat up to 450 degrees. We've been visiting family in Florida this week, and the change in environment can really affect my hair, but I thankfully had my Way Detox Shampoo with me so it could stay soft and shiny. I also love that it smells so good, and I don't have to worry about what I'm putting in my hair because Way's products are cruelty, sulfate, and paraben-free. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and use code DREAMJOB to get 15% off your entire purchase. That's 15% off your entire order at T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, code DREAMJOB. You've written this book. Everybody listening, this is the least you can do for yourself. Go get the book. And now my question to you is, in laying this out, and the book is so impactful, what were you hoping would happen for someone who read it? What were you hoping 
that they would gain, that they would be able to do? Yeah. And how, how plausible is it that we can achieve that which you were hoping we could do with it? Very, very 100% plausible. And okay. I, it came out of seeing the people that were probably the least likely to benefit, benefit. Okay. So this is now 15 years of research in my lab where after we, you know, those early days when I was like, let's bring mindfulness to the lab. Well, we did. We didn't start with pre-deployment special operations soldiers. We started with people that were going to meditation retreats and decided they're going to meditate for 12 hours a day because we wanted to see if it's not going to work there, it's never going to work. And we found positive results that yes, their attention is improved by doing a month long retreat. But I knew that even if we found attention was benefited by that, most of us cannot go on a month long retreat. We can't even go on an hour long retreat Correct. or we won't. So the project became for me, what is the minimum effective dose? What is the least amount of time mm. that time pressured, performance pressured people can do that's feasible? And it really started a series of, of studies that we did. And also for me, I was very interested in working with people for whom attention was consequential. It was life or death. And that's because frankly, the circumstances for individuals like that, <sighs> are entirely made up of the exact kryptonite conditions that will devastate our attention system. Like I said, threatening, stressful, negative circumstances will disable our attention. The number 50% of mind wandering is going to go up. So what are those kinds of professions? Really, we can characterize anybody. And that's frankly, over the last couple of years of the pandemic, it's all of us. But the, the way we describe circumstances that can really disable attention are by four letters and it's the acronym VUCA. I don't know if you've heard of that. Volatile, uncertain. So V, volatile, U, uncertain, C, complex, A, ambiguous. Welcome and to the world in 2021. That's right. That's absolutely right. But you know, until the pandemic, these were special groups. These were professionals that entered circumstances that are characterized by that. So think of a firefighter during yeah. hurricane season, Oof. when you mentioned South Florida or emergency room physicians and, and nurses, right? That is the circumstance. So now everything about the circumstances are likely to mess up your attention. And they do this day after day after day. And we as a society require and depend on them to do their jobs. And I just felt like there's gotta be a solution to help them help themselves which is what we started pursuing. So you mentioned John Kabat-Zinn, he's a dear colleague and mentor of mine, and he had already developed this wonderful eight-week program, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. When I started this work in the early 2000s, nobody had actually formally started looking at mindfulness practices and attention. So I was able to use programs like Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction and see what happens to attention. That was one of the first papers I ever published. And we found that actually it improves the flashlight for people that are novices. Um, so it was a very profound thing, but even, that program, which asks people to take two and a half hours a week mm -hmm. in a class and practice 45 minutes a day. And it's frankly the gold standard for clinical mindfulness. It's yeah. very beneficial. So all those things that you were hearing from about the blue zones and the benefits of mindfulness and meditation, I mean, they're all true and they can happen with things like mindfulness-based stress reduction, but for time pressured and performance pressured individuals, they don't identify as being stressed they don't identify as, as having any symptoms that need reducing. Yeah. It's just the nature of the world that they live yeah. in. And life. life, yeah. So the program we ended up developing, we actually, and it was really with military service members that I was keen to use this term, mindfulness-based attention training. Like 
all of them were like, yeah, I could use a little better attention. And I love the acronym MBAT. It sounded like tough and clear. And so what we found out is that we could take like John's basic program and we could titrate it down to about eight hours of training over four weeks and ask people to do about 12 minutes a day of practice. That was the time that we found if they did at least that, they benefited. And the more they did beyond that, the more they benefited. But if they did less than that, they really didn't benefit. And so it was sort of like a, you know, almost like you could say a drug trial was a dose response effect. The more you do, the more you benefit. But there is a threshold, right? So just like if you're saying, you know, is aspirin beneficial? Yes, but there's going to be a certain amount you have to have taken to have a benefit. Or if you think about physical activity, probably walking your dog is not going to really change your physical, your physiology and your cardiovascular health. But maybe preparing for a 5K or doing 30 minutes of of brisk walking might. So that was what I was looking for. What's the couch to 5K version of, for the mind? What do I need to do every day? And that could really have a significant benefit. And that's where that term 12 minutes, that value 12 minutes comes from is about eight years of research. <laughs> Incredible. And do you have a, I mean, by the way, everybody, you need, if you haven't already, her TED talk is incredible, how to tame your wandering mind, but Beyond the book and the TED Talk, do you have a 12-minute guided meditation? Do you have a course that you offer? Like, how can we spend yeah, those yeah. 12 so minutes book, productively? Absolutely. So that's what I do in the, in, in the journey of the book. Like, the first thing I'll say is don't just jump into 12 minutes if you're not used to doing this. The key is at every step, you want to get that sense of a win. So if you think you can do four minutes, do two minutes. If you think you can do two minutes, do 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Yoke it to an activity that you do every day. And like brushing your teeth, like maybe right after you brush your teeth in the morning, you're going to do it. So you want to have it be part of habit formation, start slow and ramp up to 12 minutes. Um, And then throughout the course of the book, I give various guided practices that people can try out. I also have a full program that I laid out at the end. Like, here's how you can go four full weeks, do this and and follow this format. Um, But thanks for asking. Yeah, I do have a course at mindful.org if people want to listen and yes, I've recorded guided practices if they want to do, and they're each 12 minutes long, so you can do them along with me. But the key is this, that I think the resistance and the frustration people have regarding practicing mindfulness, it comes from the expectation that they can do things like clear their mind, which is never possible. And it's the expectation that it's some kind of instant bliss that they're going to achieve. And that feeling that you started out talking about, Kathy, of like you're sitting there and you're like, ah, like what is happening inside my brain? That familiarity you get with, you know, the asshole in your mind, as Dan Harris likes to say, or like just the cacophony of noise and chatter, it's destabilizing. It's like a rude wake up call. It can be very uncomfortable. But I would say it's not a problem that it happens because. Think of the last time you might have rekindled a workout routine. I'm sure it didn't feel great. You know, it doesn't feel great to start running again if you haven't been running or lifting weights if you haven't been lifting weights. You realize that and you have an expectation that, yeah, not it's not going to feel great, but at some point it won't feel terrible. And I know how I feel if I keep doing it. And there's like a little bit of a trust there. There's a culture of understanding this is good for you. It's a normal thing that everybody's supposed to be doing. We don't have that cultural understanding for the mind. And we certainly don't have it for mindfulness practice daily, but we need to have that same orientation. So, and we can, we can have that orientation. So let's disabuse ourselves of the notion of clearing the mind or that we're going to have some 
ethereal, blissful experience. What we will get though, the real win, is we're gonna own our own attention. We're gonna know where it is moment by moment. And frankly, the only way we're gonna ever have positive, enduring change, lasting fulfillment, is through every single moment of our lives. The lasting part is the active, effortful redirect. And we've got to practice for that. You're so brilliant. And I have been sitting in those huge collective sits. I have spent day-long Vipassana. I've done all of this stuff. I have never heard it said in such a easy to access way as how you just laid this out. And you're so generous. Like you've done so many of these interviews talk about being present. You are so present and loving. And I so appreciate you really. We will put links to your course, to the book, to the Ted talk, all of that. I really highly recommend people just grab the course so they can just like get in the habit and do the book and the course together. Before we sign off, my question for you is, how does your life feel to you now that you've been doing this? How much of your living experience do you <laughs> now experience? You know, I think the main thing is any really difficult moment, I don't think is going to last forever. And any beautiful moment, I don't think is going to last forever. So I, this is not something that I rarely think about. I think about this often, which is, what is different? What is different about me since I've been practicing? And it's kind of interesting. The first, my son was born before I knew about mindfulness. Very difficult birth and uh, pain. You know, a lot of, as many women know, like painful. Second kid knew about mindfulness, painful, but I was present for it and it just didn't sting as much. I mean, it was like I was able to be there for it. And in some sense, the reason I'm mentioning it is because again, just like we were saying about life, the circumstances may be challenging, but we come to it in a different way. And the one thing that I think I've really cultivated through this is like the sort of idea that it's, I'm better able to befriend my own mind and my own attention. I'm like here for it. I'm like totally here for it. I'm here, I'm on my side. And I'm not even on my side like I'm gonna achieve my goals. I'm just here for whatever it is. And part of that comes from just the challenge of being with your own mind for a certain amount of time every day. Because terrible thoughts come in, blissful thoughts come in, boring thoughts come in, and I'm here for all of it. I'm not going anywhere. So when circumstances are terrible or blissful or boring, I can be here for it. I know it. I know I have the tolerance to do that. And so now it's not about some fantasy that I'm going to be able to ultimately in my life put my feet up and everything is going to be great. It's that there will be some moments I'll get to do that. And they're weaved into a lot of the other moments of my life. And that, that, this gives me a buoyancy to live that I feel is more self-sustaining than any kind of dream that everything is going to match up to be all the ideal conditions that will last forever. Oh, such a brilliant and wonderful answer, just befriending your mind, right? And, and then therefore being able to be with whatever is with more capacity and actually letting go of the expectation that you're going to arrive at some destination. Yeah. And it's kind of funny, you know, just to, to wrap up, but the term peak mind, I mean, to use that word peak mind, in some sense, it was a play on that whole notion. When you hear it, 
you know, you might think of like a successory, like woman on mountaintop, like I did it. But it wasn't that. It was that even if I was grief stricken or extremely sad or extremely joyous, like I could be there for all of it. I could just be there for all of it. The peak was having full access to my own mind and my own attention. I'm sure you've already heard this. Somebody has said this to you, but last Christmas, that new Pixar movie came out, Soul. And it's already been a year, you guys. So spoiler alert, but you know, he wants to get a second chance to come back to earth and he wants to play this jazz with this icon. Like that's his whole thing. And in the end, what does he realize? That the jackpot was sitting in a park or eating the pizza or riding a bike. And by the end of that movie, we're all in tears because it's just living our life moment by moment, which is so extraordinary, all of it, right? I mean, I'm just thinking like how many times, and those of you listening maybe relate, you've been in a hard moment, you've been sitting at a funeral, and yet you feel so connected that there is almost a, there's almost a satisfying, meaningful, beautiful quality to it, right? Just the presence, just being present, right? So thank you so much for being you. Thank you for being so generous and loving and not pretentious and walking the walk and writing such a phenomenal book and making it something that we can actually now access. I love how you broke that into tiny steps and said, if you think you can do two minutes, do a minute, four minutes, do two. Oh, what a gift to hear that from such a phenomenal teacher. So tell us where we can buy the book and repeat one more time where we can grab the course. Oh, sure. So let's start with the course, mindful.org. And if you just go there and type in my name, Amishi Ja, you'll find a link to the course. You can get a copy of the book, actually, if you sign up for the course. And anything else you want to find out about me or my lab, the research, the book, just remember my first name, A-M-I-S-H-I dot com. Incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you. How incredible is she? I could have talked to her for hours. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one. Attention is the fuel we need in order to do very everyday things and important things. It's a superpower. Number two, when we take a broader container view of our experience, we feel more capable of handling anything that's happening to us. Number three, pay attention to present moment experience without editorializing or reacting to it. Stay here without clicking on the next link. Number four, accept the way there. Number five, focus, notice, and redirect. Number six, the only way we can have positive, enduring change and lasting fulfillment is through every moment of our lives. The lasting part is the active, effortful redirect, and we have to practice that. Number seven, disabuse yourself from the notion of clearing the mind or having an eternal blissful experience. The real win is just owning your own attention. Thank you so much for listening. I know that it's the holidays and there's a million things that you have to do. And it means so much to me that you're here. And I really am so glad you were here for this conversation because it's so important. If you can think of anyone who needs to hear this conversation, and I believe everyone does, please send this link. Please post about it and tag her. You know, not only is she brilliant, but it's incredibly powerful to see a woman doctor neuroscientist sharing this information. And she's one of the most humble, brilliant people I've ever met. And I want you 
to share this because I think that this could really help someone have a better quality of life, especially this holiday season. Please share this and please go to your Instagram and tag her. And if you tag me and her, then I will repost some of them and I will say a personal thank you to you in the DMs. We have so many good episodes coming up. Rachel Ray is going to be here. So many good, cool things happening. Please subscribe. It is free to subscribe. Tell your friends, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, listen on Spotify, wherever you listen. And don't forget that we're doing this Black Friday promo. We're still running it for a few days. You can join me for $25. We're starting this membership. It's called Lit Up. I will be with you once a month to light you up, to light that flame so that you can go be that light in the world the way that you came here to be. You can go to kathyheller.com slash BF to get the Black Friday deal. Come and join us. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song. I'll talk to you Thursday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com.